Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see everyone here and worshiping together as we have gathered in the name of our Savior to give him glory. Uh, please join me in prayer before we hear the scripture read and continue in our study of Zechariah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that we can, we can worship you and do so without fear of reproach, without fear of rejection, that the awe and reverence that accompanies our worship is caused by the, the powerful and amazing grace which you have bestowed upon us in your Son. When Moses and Israel, Lord God, stood at the foot of Sinai and it was covered with clouds and thick darkness, the earth trembled at the sound of your voice and people were fearful and were not permitted even to go near the base of the mountain. But now that Christ has come, We are at the foot of a different mountain. We have come to Mount Zion, there to be welcomed in with myriads and myriads of angels and countless millions of believers who have walked this earth and now live in your presence, as do we, by faith. We have come to Mount Zion. We have come to glory. We have come without fear. That though our God is a consuming fire, that fire has consumed our Savior. And because he was consumed by that fire and zeal as well for your house, we are not consumed, but we are saved. Father, we thank you. May we have a zeal, O Lord God, not only for worshiping you, but for expressing this worship, for expressing this Grace, sharing it with others, living it out as salt and light. We thank you that we have come to Mount Zion, that we are always and ever in your presence, that you walk with us, that you walk before us, that you are our rear guard as well. So Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And we pray for the ministry of the Spirit now as we hear your word as it is preached. We thank you for your forgiveness. And may, O oh Lord, now we experience uh, the truth of your word. For your word is truth. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This is the, uh, the fifth vision that Zechariah has. Remember, he has eight visions all happening in one night. And beginning uh, in chapter 4, the fifth vision unfolds as follows. Zechariah says, And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and one on its left. 
And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And the second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. And then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. If you uh, own a vehicle or have ever owned a vehicle uh, produced by General Motors and you are familiar with OnStar, it's a a subscription service for cars and trucks that are made by General Motors, um, offers in-vehicle security, emergency services, hands-free calling, uh, turn-by-turn navigation, and remote diagnostics. A few years ago, there was an OnStar commercial which began with an aerial view, like a drone view of a forest. And the camera then pans downward. And we see a spider weaving a web. We see birds in flight. We see a wolf walking through the forest. And then we see a deer taking a drink in a crystal clear stream. And suddenly the deer lifts its head and its ears twitch in the direction of a noise coming downstream. The camera then follows the stream, then pulls out So we get a greater aerial view of the scene, and we notice that the sound is the blaring monotone of a car horn. And there is a car that has driven off the side of the road, almost off the bridge. And then we see a woman sitting inside an SUV, and she has obviously been shaken up. And as she regains her composure, she hears a voice. Jane, this is Jim from OnStar. I've contacted help, and they're on the way. Jane, coming to her senses, says, okay, is there anyone I can call while you wait? And she says, my husband. Okay, says Jim. Don't worry, I'm going to stay with you until help arrives. We have have a built-in need for assurance, especially when we have driven off the road and end up in a ditch. It's very comforting to hear someone say to you, I've contacted help. They're on their way. It's an even greater comfort when that voice at the other end says, I'm going to stay with you until help arrives. That's because we also have a built-in need for presence. I experienced this on a personal level when our daughter lived in Red Hook, New York, and she had to, uh, it was the middle of the wintertime, and she had to sing at a, at a, at a 
festival somewhere in upstate New York. And on the drive home, she was in the middle of a snowstorm. And she called as uh, was wonderful using a cell phone. And I was able to just talk with her the whole, actually I just listened to her as she described for me what she was driving through. And it reminded me of this commercial. And it reminded me that we have this built-in need for assurance. We have this built-in need, especially for presence. God created us with a built-in need for assurance. Because when you're lying in a ditch, when you're driving through a snowstorm, it's comforting to know that God is your refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. It's an even greater comfort to know that no matter how we ended up in that ditch, whether it's our fault or the fault of someone else, God has promised never to leave us nor forsake us because God also created us to have a built-in need for presence, and specifically His presence. The second part of Zechariah's fifth vision is all about God and His presence in the midst of his people as he calls them to a very difficult and challenging task. It's about how God fulfills that need that he created for our sense of his presence, the assurance that he is with us, that he will be with us, and that he will give us whatever we need to carry out whatever ministry or mission he gives to us. Last week, we looked at the first part, the golden lampstand, and there we saw how the, the lampstand and representing the church anticipates the, the mission of the church, that we are the light of the world, lighting the world with the light of Christ to the, the way to the Father's house. So this week, we, we turn our attention to the two olive trees and to this character with a funny-sounding name, Zerubbabel. And we'll, we're going to examine how these two aspects of this fifth vision, the two olive trees and Zerubbabel, teach us how God will now help us carry out that mission to light the way to the Father's house. And so we'll uh, attack these, uh, these two characters, if you will, the same way we address the, the golden lampstand, simply by asking questions and answering them. So we think about Zerubbabel, who is he? Why is he here? And what does he mean? The two olive trees, what are they? Why are they here? And what do they mean? Let's look at Zerubbabel. He just appears in Zechariah out of nowhere. The same way that Joshua the high priest appears in uh, Zechariah 3. We'll find out that if you do some research, Zerubbabel, his name, which is fun to say, right? Zerubbabel, not many kids name Zerubbabel, I've noticed in my ministry, but that's another story. Zerubbabel, his name means seed of Babylon. It tells us that he was likely born in Babylon, likely born during the exile. Most of what we know about him is, is learned through the prophet Zechariah, through the prophet Haggai, is written about in Ezra and Nehemiah. We know that he is from the tribe of Judah which tells us that if you know your uh, Old Testament genealogies, descending from the tribe of Judah means he is a descendant of King David, which tells us that he is of royal blood. That's who he is. Now, why is he here? He's here because God chose him to rebuild the temple and to play a very pivotal role in the renewal and the revitalization of Israel. 
And in doing that, humanly speaking, Zerubbabel now faces a nearly insurmountable task from a human perspective. He has to rebuild the city, starting with the temple. The walls of the city won't be constructed until Nehemiah shows up some years later. But the priority for Zerubbabel, the priority for the people, is to rebuild the temple because that's the locus of God's presence. That's the, the, the center of their worship. They have to reinstate and restore the sacrificial system. And so Zerubbabel is given this insurmountable task. And whenever anyone, and ourselves especially, when you're ever confronted with an overwhelming task, which could be as simple as just getting up and going to work, or cleaning up something. If some of you have bought houses that are fixer-uppers, and you just look at that and you go room by room, and suddenly you begin to this whole process, you think, this is more than I bargained for. Or you bought a car that you were going to work on, and it's like, man, this is a lot of work. It's going to take more than a weekend to get this done. You get discouraged. And in getting discouraged, you become tempted to Take shortcuts. Zerubbabel might be tempted to cut corners. He might be grow discouraged. And in his discouragement, he might be tempted to compromise his ethics. He might be tempted, like previous kings of Judah and Israel, to make unwise political alliances. Maybe engage in the same kind of shady behavior that was practiced by previous kings, which then plunged the nation into captivity. So knowing this, knowing that God has given Zerubbabel from a human standpoint an insurmountable task, what does God do? Well, he sends him the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. He sends him the prophets to encourage him in the work, so that while the work itself may be wearying, Zechariah will not grow weary in the work. In Haggai 2, 2 to 5, the prophet Haggai, who is a contemporary of Zechariah, he's there at the same time. This is what God says to Haggai to say to Zerubbabel. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory, speaking of the temple? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of Israel, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. There is rebuilding that needs to be done. There will be rebuilding that needs to be done, particularly in the aftermath of COVID. Rebuilding a, a culture, if you will, of security and trust rather than one is motivated and grounded in fear or trepidation or anxiety. A need even to rebuild our own structure and culture here at Maranatha. And it seems like an insurmountable task because 
While the elders have a particular vision for what that looks like, we understand that that vision may not be shared equally among all the members. So there is a need then for us to take mutual encouragement from God that the work that he has called us to do may be wearying, but we ought not grow weary in the work. So God speaks to Zerubbabel a word of encouragement, that there is rebuilding that needs to be done. But be strong, fear not, which are two of the greatest commands that God gives in his word. Very reminiscent of what God tells Joshua after Moses has died and Joshua must now lead the nation across the Jordan into the promised land. And God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. Don't veer to the right, don't veer to the left, but walk in the way that I prescribe. That's what God is telling Zerubbabel. It's what he's telling Joshua the high priest. And that's what he's telling the people. Be strong. Yes, there is work to do, and you must do the work. But I am with you in the work. I will not leave you or forsake you, so don't be afraid. But it takes two witnesses, doesn't it, to confirm something as being true? It would be one thing if that's the only word that Zerubbabel heard from the prophet Zechariah, from the prophet Haggai. But God, because he is gracious, confirms that word and that encouragement through the prophet Zechariah. And so he sends Zechariah to deliver another word of encouragement, an affirmation confirming the word that Haggai says, not only for Zerubbabel's sake, not only for Joshua's sake, but for the sake of the people, to assure them that Zerubbabel and Joshua are his men for that moment. And so this is why in the fifth vision, there is this word that is delivered to Zechariah to deliver to Zerubbabel. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. That's the reference from Haggai, where Haggai asks the people there, does anybody remember? Or has anybody been told stories about the former glory and grandeur of the temple that was here, that was built by Solomon? And what do you see now? A pile of rocks, a pile of rubble, dust and debris. None of the former glory is there. It's gone. But, but, it can be rebuilt. It will be rebuilt. And those who would despise the day of small things, says the Lord, will find themselves ashamed, much like Henry V says in his wonderful speech there, those who now lay abed in England will hold their lives cheap that they were not with us on this St. Crispin's Day. So those that are in exile still, those that are in our midst who despise the day of small things will count their lives as cheap that they did not willingly participate and have hope in the rebuilding and the revitalization and the renewal, not only of this temple, but of the nation as a whole. Rebuilding is hard work. The labor 
It's physically demanding, it is emotionally exhausting, and it is spiritually taxing. Zerubbabel has a mountain of rubble and a mountain of trouble before him. God did not spare him that work. But God promised that he would help him in the work. That God would be with him in the work. We have work to do here. We have work to do here in recovering and coming back from COVID, from coming back from whatever has mired us in the past and the work to move forward because Zechariah, remember, is all about a moving forward, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, pressing on. That takes work. Forgetting takes work. Pressing on takes work. It's physically demanding. It's spiritually exhausting. It's emotionally taxing. But God has promised to be with us in the work. It's a work as well that he has given us to do. Zerubbabel looks at a mountain of rubble. If you can remember seeing images of the, 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 the debris and the rubble after the Twin Towers fell. Zerubbabel is looking at a scene like that. And rebuilding the temple, however, is vital to the recovery and the renewal of Israel. The old was gone. It's not coming back. So the the new must come forward. You can mourn the past. You can mourn the events that created that past. But you can't live there. That's why God says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Because that's how you forget. That's how you move forward. Because we hold on to things. And God says, let it go. I've got a new thing in mind. I've got a new plan. I've got a new venture. I've got a new work. Before Zerubbabel can lay the foundation. He's got to clear away the debris. He's got to clear away that mountain. But the mountain that he faces isn't just made of stones and boulders of dirt and debris. There's a literal mountain in front of him. But figuratively, he is surrounded by a mountain of trouble with nations around there that are hostile to Israel. He's got enemies outside. He's got detractors inside as well. Which is why the encouragement is given to to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. Because in order for the nation to prosper, the king and the priest must work in concert for the good of the people. So if the king is corrupt, the nation will suffer. If the priests are corrupt, the nation will suffer. If both are corrupt, the nation is done for. But if both are dedicated to the work, hand in glove, hand in hand, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, then the nation can prosper and the work can move forward. Not all mountains are made of boulders and stone, of dirt and debris. Some mountains are made from circumstances. Debt, illness, loneliness, fear, anxiety, pandemics. Some are self-made. 
It's a mountain that's created by an addiction. Maybe the regret over a, a decision in the past that didn't turn out so well. Our own guilt and our own shame, our own pride, our own conceit. Some mountains are made of friends and family. The hurt, the anger perhaps caused by abuse, an unkind word blurted out at the wrong moment in the heat of an argument. Perhaps even the failure to meet one's own expectations or even parental expectations. We all stand, if you will, on the precipice of our own potential, and we always evaluate our ability to do something. These mountains that we face, they are not, they cannot be removed. Though we try, they cannot be removed in our own might and in our own power. So if you'll forgive me for the obvious, what's your mountain? Is it a mountain that's created by a, a trouble, a troubled past that has been littered with bad decisions or poor decisions? The word of the Lord is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Is it a mountain that is created by an ongoing addiction? Then the word is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Is it a mountain that's created by having to work through the healing process as a result of some physical or verbal or sexual abuse, the word of the Lord is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Is it a mountain of confusion because you have no idea what God is doing in your life and why he has chosen you to do it? The word of the Lord is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Is it a mountain that's created by fear, Frustration, maybe the anxiety created by the pandemic and the lack of a clear plan moving forward. The word of the Lord is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. God will not spare us the work. He will not spare us from doing the work. But he does promise to be with us in the work and to give us whatever we need to do the work. He does not expect you or I to move these mountains in our own strength and our own power. He expects us to trust him. Trust him to help us move them. He expects us to, to look to him with the assurance that everything will be okay. He expects us to trust him that he will move that mountain by trusting him to give us what we need when he knows we need it. Now you'll ask me, well, Pastor, what does that look like? And my answer is, I don't know. When I was a much younger pastor, I convinced myself I had to know, and I would have been more than willing to tell you. However, age and experience have taught me that is not true. I do not need to have all the answers. And so ask me, what does this look like? And I say, I do not know, but God does. I don't know your situation, but God does. I don't know your circumstances, God does. I don't know your challenges, but God does. I don't know your pain, but God does. And God is on 
the lookout for people, his people especially, who are willing to trust him with their pain, with their anxiety, with their confusion, with their anger. He is looking for people who will give him their past so he can invest in them his future. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord watch the whole earth carefully, and he is ready to strengthen those who are devoted to him. God is constantly looking for ways to help us. And he promises to give us what we need when he knows we need it. We have this idea that somehow the Christian life is God saves us, and once we're saved, we say, got it, I'll take it from here. And if I ever need you, like OnStar, you'll contact me when I'm in trouble. And God says, that's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. I saved you for a particular reason to empower and equip you to be part of a community that you can do good work through, and in you I can do good work through them. Zerubbabel stands there as a man who is facing a challenge. The only claim he has to be governor is his birthright, but he has to prove himself to be a leader. And he has to prove himself as a leader by trusting not in his might, not in his power, but in the power of God's Spirit to equip him with everything he needs to bring this nation together. Now what does he mean? Well, obviously, if if you're thinking at all about this, and we should, Zerubbabel points to the ministry of Christ. The old temple is gone. And we study this in our CG, right? Jesus cleanses the temple, signifying the fact that the old covenant, it's on its way out. Because even though in Jesus' day the temple stood, there was still rubble in the temple. There were still remnants of our sin and our sinfulness on depravity where we easily transform what God intends to be holy into something of a place of commerce and envy and jealousy. And so Jesus cleanses that temple and he replaces it with himself as a true and perfect temple. The Holy Spirit supplies Zerubbabel and Jesus with everything they needed to carry out their mission. In Zerubbabel's case, it comes through a word from God. In Jesus' case, it's he's baptized by John, and then the Spirit descends on him like a dove. Jesus does not begin his ministry until he's baptized, and the Spirit descends upon him. Because the very first thing Jesus does after he emerges from his baptismal waters and the Spirit descends on him, it says it's a beautiful statement in, Mark's, in Luke's Gospel, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That's us. That's all of us. It's not just to the people living on the street in San Francisco or in lower Manhattan or in the Port Authority. But the gospel is meant for us as well to then go to them and say, here's good news. You don't have to live like this because a man came who lived like this to pull you up from this, to make you better to give you something more. Some believe that Zerubbabel was the Messiah, that he was the Savior. 
But that honor cannot go to someone whose name means the seed of Babylon. God did not choose Zerubbabel to save Israel. He chose him to rebuild the temple. Because that's what kings do. Kings build temples. Priests serve in them. Which is why he prefigures Christ. Because Christ, what does he say in Matthew 16? I will build my church. And then Peter, to whom he says that to, will write later on in his letter, all of you, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house in order to make sacrifices holy and acceptable to God. So the king builds a temple, us, and he supplies it with priests to serve him, serve one another, and serve the world. Zerubbabel, this is your mission. This is your goal. This is your work. Jesus is greater than Zerubbabel, though. Because he is both king and priest. He is greater than Zerubbabel because not only is Jesus anointed with the Spirit, but he anoints with the Spirit. He is greater than Zerubbabel because he is the true Messiah, the true Savior. He is the true temple. And we are his priests. Jesus is greater than David. He's the greater king. He's greater than Aaron. He's the greater high priest. He's, the greater, he's greater than Moses because he is the, great, the greater prophet. He is greater than Isaac because he is the greater seed of Abraham. He's the son of God. He's the savior of all who trust in him. Why? Because the apostles tell us in Acts, for salvation, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. That's Acts 4.12. That name is Jesus, the Messiah. And like Zerubbabel, the apostles were given, from a human standpoint, an insurmountable task. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave the great commission to the apostles, telling them to go into the world. But before that, do you know what Jesus did? Before he gives the great commission in Matthew's gospel, if you go, and some of us, we've all been reading through John's gospel for the CG, you just jump ahead to John 20, after the resurrection, and Jesus appears to the apostles in the upper room. He breathes on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 1, before Jesus ascends, he says, wait, and then 10 days from now you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. So we have this insurmountable task to face a mountain that is hostile to the church, and yet with the power of the Spirit we can confront that mountain and by faith move it into the sea by proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is. And that brings us to the two olive trees. What are they? Well, they're olive trees. <laughs> what do olive trees do? What are they used for? They're used to, su to supply olives, olive wood, uh, but also oil. The other thing, thing I, I learned too about olive trees, just as an aside, 
they can live up to 1,000 years if they're treated right. If you cut down an olive tree, it can grow shoots, which will then sustain a life. So it makes you think of Isaiah 11, the stump of Jesse, a branch comes forward. That's a whole other thing. Get back to here, because my brain will just go in different directions. They represent, these olive trees, God's presence and provision. Because powered by the oil of the Holy Spirit, symbolized in the menorah, the golden lampstand, this oil flows from the trees in a constant, never-ending stream and supply. That's why they're there. The olive trees are there to provide an endless supply of fresh oil. Some of you have a, an English standard version of the Bible, and you have a marginal note, perhaps in the center column at the bottom of your page. You'll notice that the, the phrase or the term anointed ones is, can be also translated sons of fresh oil. The idea conveyed is that this oil is constantly supplied. It never goes stale. It's always flowing into the menorah. Why? So that the menorah would have an endless supply of oil, which would always keep it lit. So that it would always shine with the light of God's glory and truth. That in the same way the, the darkness could not extinguish the light of the world who is Jesus, in the same way the darkness cannot extinguish the light that radiates from his church. The reports of the death of the church, whether it's here or around the world, are greatly exaggerated. God is never going to leave himself without a witness. And the darkness may grow darker, but that just means the light shines brighter. Because the darker the darkness, the brighter the light. And no matter how deep the darkness grows, the light will keep shining because the power that keeps that light shining comes not by might, not by power, but from God's Spirit through a people who are dependent upon Him for that power. These trees also point to the greater ministry of Jesus as the true Israel, the true menorah, the true lampstand, the one who is indeed the eternal light of the world. That really touches on also what they mean. In the immediate context, these trees represent the, the role of prophets throughout the entire Old Testament. In the immediate context, they represent the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, whose ministry it is now to encourage, to instruct, and exhort Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people to keep carrying on the work that the light will always be there. The seven eyes, the seven lamps there, which are God's eyes roaming throughout the world, always watching, always vigilant to care for his people, provide what they need. Viewed from the perspective of the New Testament and the mission of the church, the olive trees, they also now anticipate the ministry of Christ in the Spirit. Because as the greater prophet, Jesus is anointed by the Spirit to announce the presence of the kingdom of God. As the greater high priest, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for sin. And as the greater king, he is the anointed Messiah, the risen Savior upon whom, is, upon whom God has bestowed the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Jesus is unique, as I said earlier, because not only is he anointed with the Spirit, but he anoints with the Spirit. So the work that he has called us to do, not only to rebuild our culture here at Maranatha, but to then go out into the world as light and salt and witnesses, Jesus is committed to providing whatever we need in the power of his Spirit to do what he has called us to do. When you think about it that way, then those two olive trees ultimately will represent Jesus and the Spirit because these two together, the risen Lord and God the Holy Spirit, they are the two that power us. They are supplied to us that the Spirit comes from the Father through Christ so that we as a church may reflect His glory. Go back to the OnStar commercial for a moment and think again. It's all about presence. That if the, if the Holy Spirit is that immediate sense of presence, if, if the Spirit is the voice speaking to us, are you there? Are you all right? Is there anyone I can call? And the satellite, if you will, is the Lord Christ watching over us, then he knows where we are and he sends his spirit to be present with us, providing us with everything we know. We need to know that God is present with us, that we can also then be equipped and bold in carrying out his commands, not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we confess our need for the, the indwelling work and power of your Holy Spirit. We give you thanks that it is available to us by faith and trust in your name and in your word. We thank you, Father, for the work that you have given us to do, that though we may be wearied by it, we do not grow weary in it. And so help us, O Lord God, with an endless supply of your Spirit, that we might bring glory to you that others also may confess that Christ is Lord. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.